Good morning, church. My name is Ryan McLaughlin, and this is my wife, Emily. And we have our, our covenant partners here at First Presbyterian Church and are very excited to get to read scripture with you all. This morning, we continue our Advent series by celebrating the sure hope we have in God's faithfulness and his covenant commitment to keep his promises. We will see how God's sovereign grace has designated hope, details hope, and determines hope. No matter how dark or difficult your situation, hope rises like the sun when we trust God in his promise. Please join us in reading Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Nebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you very much. If you have Bibles, please keep them open. If you don't have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them. Uh, Open your phone, uh, or we have Bibles over there for you. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, with blind Bartimaeus, we ask you, Jesus, son of David, to have mercy. Where there is darkness, we pray you'd give light. Where there is blindness, we pray you'd give sight. Lord, where there is weakness, we ask that you give might. Where there is death, we pray, Jesus, that you would give life. Lord, please give peace this morning where there is strife. Holy Spirit, use your word to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. So this is the third week of our Advent sermon series, even though it's only the second week of Advent. If the stores can start early, so can the church. Check your self-righteousness at the door. We just enjoy celebrating the first coming of Jesus. We've seen that God's promises are more ancient than we can even begin to realize. It gives us the freedom not only to address the issue behind the issues of our life and our world, but also to embrace God's solution to all the pain and the problems of life. And that's the promise that was first proclaimed in Genesis 3.15. And then from there, we follow the story of the promise in Scripture up to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and we, we saw that 
God, his faithfulness to his promises is relentless. That the ground from which his promise grows is fertilized with his grit, his faithfulness, that, that death can't derail his promises, that sin can't stop his promises, and that time will not make them tarry. God is faithful. And this morning we're going to see how God's promises fuel hope. They get, it gives peace to our hearts in a world of pain and problems. And hope does not disappoint. Because hope has been designated, it's the first thing we're going to see. It's detailed in this passage, and then it's been determined in the past, present, and the future. In Advent, this season of the church, it celebrates the first coming of Jesus. God is faithful to his promise. Jesus has come. And it cultivates hope, knowing because God is faithful to his promise, Jesus will come again. He'll make all sad things become untrue. He'll redeem all that he has allowed. And he will restore peace, shalom, his intended design for all of life. And until he comes again, we have a temptation. And that temptation is to make agreements or treaties with things in this world, with people in this world, with powers, places in this world, looking for things that only God can give us. And today we're going to talk about who or what we make agreements with or treaties with. I want to do it first uh, by, by illustrating how futile treaties looking for peace can actually be. Looking at the history of our country, reading this uh, past couple of weeks, I came across a, a treaty that I didn't know of. Maybe you historians know of it. It's called the, the Kellogg-Brand Treaty of 1928. Okay, so none of us have heard of it. I mean, finally, I'm in good company. It's not a table for one. It's middle school, relived all the time. Not today. It was sponsored by France and the United States after World War I, which was the war to end all wars. You remember the title. And so they made a treaty with all these international countries that outlawed war. <laughs> that was a treaty. And they committed to each other that war was going to be illegal. It was no longer to be, quote, an instrument of national or foreign policy, end quote. Well, not only did the treaty profoundly fail its stated purpose, but members that signed the treaty, countries like Japan, went straight into war not too many years after it. And it opened up a century where people and countries didn't want to talk about how they were using war as an instrument of international policy, and they were reframing it as, oh, they're just armed conflicts, not war. And it turned out to be one of the bloodiest centuries in the history of the world. World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam. You see, making treaties or trying to make an agreement for peace in this world, it's totally artificial. And it's important that we understand that because the context of today's passage actually comes in the midst of international relationship, where King Ahaz, who was the king of the northern kingdom, and we know this from Isaiah 7 to 9 and places like 2 Kings chapter 16. This is history. Ahaz was insecure. The northern kingdom was under threat from an alliance between Ephraim and Syria. They were teaming up to take down the northern kingdom. 
And rather than turning to God and making an agreement with God to believe his promises to protect, Ahaz made a treaty, an alignment with Assyria, with one of the guys who has the worst name of any name in history. The emperor's name at the time was Tiglath Pilassar. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's, just a, that's a tough life. He, and he grew up. You could tell he was bullied growing up because this guy was a mean leader of Assyria. And all through Isaiah, uh, the, the, you can see when, when the prophet is speaking to Ahaz, he's saying, your agreement for peace with Assyria will end up in problems for you. The very place that you're making a treaty, trying to find security, is the very place where you will receive suffering. And that's what happened. In the 8th century BC, Assyria actually carried the northern kingdom into exile. The very place they made a treaty looking for peace was the very place where they found their demise. Why? Because they forfeited the opportunity to seek peace by believing the promises that God has. In a world of difficulties, in a world of pressure, in a world of fear, in a world of pain and problems, they chose to live by what they saw and what they believe was actually powerful empires of their day. I wish we could identify with that. We can. That's why that's funny. How bad was it? Look at the end of chapter 8 before we jump into this, process, this, this passage. This is how deep the darkness was. The prophet says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The downward spiral of distress and despondency had hit rock bottom. And this is the context where Isaiah brings in this prophecy, a promise of true peace that comes through a treaty, an agreement, a faith of choosing to break the agreements of the world with the authorities of the world, the, the agreements that we have with anxiety that give us power over our life, and to believe the promises of God. And the first thing that we see is, is, is this hope. It's hope designated. Look at verses 1 to 3. We're going to sprint through these passages today. But I love this stuff. The first thing that we see in hope designated is that gloom is changed to glory, but there will be no more gloom, says the prophet, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By the way, Emily, good job pronouncing those. Ryan made her pronounce the difficult names um, in the reading. But in the later time, he has, made a, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is extremely significant because these geographical locations that have funny names, they're actually the place where Jesus began his ministry. And you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4 and you can see this is an unbelievable thing that you might look past. But as Jesus begins his ministry, it says he's, he heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist. He withdrew, where? To Galilee. In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, 
The people dwelling in darkness will see a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, to them a light has dawned. You see, gloom changes to glory when Jesus enters the story. Because hope has been determined that a light would come into darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world. God has been faithful to keep his promise. And he will be faithful to keep it still today. Not only does gloom turn to glory, but, but ruin, gloom turns to glory, but ruin turns to rejoicing. Go back to Isaiah 9 and look what happens. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Listen to this. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see, there's people in the northern kingdom that receive this prophecy, and they're in the midst of despair, darkness, and gloom. Ruined. Why? Because they've made an agreement with the powers of the world and they're looking horizontally for hope. But Jesus speaks, or the word of God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to people who want to make an agreement, a treaty with God, and to believe him. And the ruin turns to rejoicing. Do you see the language of this passage? In the midst of devastation and darkness, there is imagery of rejoicing. Joy <laughs> turns to rejoicing. Ha <laughs> ha! In the midst of darkness, hope turns into harvest. Where they're dividing the spoil, it is a picture of multiplied joy and rejoicing and of hope because people trust and agree with God. Hope has been designated because Jesus has domesticated death and darkness and he's transformed it into a doorway for his promises to be brought to fruition. I wanted to capture this poetically, so what did I do? I turned to Emily Dickinson. <laughs> Don't worry, I didn't write a poem. This is a phenomenal poem. She wrote a poem called Hope Has Feathers. Hope, she says, it's a thing with feathers. It perches in the soul, it sings in tune without words, and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard. And sore must be the storm that could abash this little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chilliest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity, listen, never in extremity did it ask a crumb of me. This picture of hope that perches in our soul that in the middle of hard seasons or severe storms, it invites us to sing with it. That somehow in our suffering and struggle, the promises of God are purged here and invite us to sing and rejoice. The reality of the determined hope, it is to say that in the darkness, there is light. In the storm, there is a land that is a refuge. That in your struggling, there is a strength that is available. That the wind and the waves still obey the voice of the one who created them. Hope determined is a fact that you can sing with the 
feathered hope in your soul. That's a powerful picture and a more powerful invitation. Through that, together we'll find a peace that surpasses all understanding. So the hope is designated. But second, we see that the hope is detailed. Look at verse 4. And uh, we're not going to play Bible trivia, so I'm going to ask a question, and then I'm going to give you the answer, so you all succeed today. All right? Our students are like, final exams are killing me. Stop it. You'll be okay. Where, what part of Scripture is this alluding to? For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. All of that language is very intentionally, along with much of this passage, taking us back to the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The exodus. The greatest act of redemption that God had given his people is a redemption that frees Using the imagery of oppressors, of rods, and of burdens, that, these words that, are, that cascade through that narrative, the prophet wants us to go back and understand that redemption that is detailed in hope, it frees. But secondly, which one does this for, refer to? At the end of verse 4, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What is that referring to? You all know it. Answer, the victory of Gideon. You remember Gideon? He was one of the judges. You can read about his story in Judges chapter 6 to 9. I think it's 6 to 9. I'm just going to say 6 to 9 because I don't think any of y'all know the difference. Maybe you do. If you know the difference, you can correct me later. I'll take it. I'll receive the rebuke. But you know the story. Gideon was given 300,000 people, 30,000 people, thousands and thousands of people to go fight against the Midian army that were described as being like locusts. And God systematically dwindled his, uh, his army, and he ended up with 300 people. And when he went into battle against Midian, he didn't take a bunch of weapons. The 300 people took what all of us want to take into battle. Trumpets, jars of clay, and torches. And they surrounded the enemy that was in the valley, and they all blew their trumpets at the same time, they all smashed their jars, and light burst forth. And the enemy was confused, turned on itself, and they did nothing but scream for the Lord and for Gideon, held torches, and the enemy fled. As on the day of Midian, this salvation will come. Redemption that frees, but, but weakness that delivers salvation. That's the picture here. This indescribable place that, that the enemy can be totally routed. The most powerful enemy in the land is routed by light that broke forth in darkness. Well, what is that? The answer from the prophet is that it's a child. A child that is born. Redemption that is promised is through the weakest place possible. The painted picture of hope is through the sloppy messiness of the birth of a child. For unto us a child is born. Now I was praying through today, and you can tell in our worship service, our people leading worship, I, I said, Lord, can we wait to have that prophecy filled? You know, I don't want a child to be born at the end of the service. We've got a couple of pregnant ladies up here leading us. Uh, so we have an agreement. We're going to at least wait till the end of worship service. Um, but the hope... It was like an exciting thing that, that a child would be born and not just any child, a son. A son that will be given a king 
that will redeem, a king that through his weakness will bring salvation. This king is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And if we had time, we would go back in detail how two of these are ripping their language from the Exodus story and how the prophet and the word of God is beautifully painting this picture of salvation, of what has been accomplished for God's people, what you have forgotten for God's people, will be made full for God's people through this child. And then Ahaz, this, he, he, the wonderful, is like this divine counsel. Ahaz thought in his human counsel that he would make an agreement with these human powers. And it ends in his devastation, but, but God in his grace doesn't eliminate his people, but he offers a wonderful counselor who's an everlasting father that is a king. And all kings in the ancient Near East claim to be a father to their people. They want to have this intimate relationship with their people, but none of them can, uh, claim to be an everlasting king. But there would be one that would come. He's the everlasting king. He's a, he's a mighty God. He himself will be from David's throne, but God himself and the prince of peace. It is a fitting climax of this passage that, that the horrors of war, the horrors of devastation, the horrors of the brokenness in our world that are tragically exemplified by war, that this king gives peace. And not just peace in the sense that it, wars will cease, but that's a necessary ingredient but peace in the sense that this king will, will reweave all that has been ripped apart by the fall and by sin. He'll restore the world to the way it's supposed to be. That all the sad things will become untrue. The, the broken relationships that you have with friends and family, the, the pain that you have from loss, the, the feel, fear, feeling of betrayal, burdens that you carry, you cannot control. All of these will be redeemed. There's another side of the tapestry. There's a beautiful picture being painted by the sovereign God. And you can trust this because not only has hope been designated and detailed, but it's been determined. It's, it, it, it will happen. The child has David's throne of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne over his kingdom, the throne of David, to establish it and uphold it. This is the background of what Luke 3 says. When the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. His name will be called Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus gives a kingdom of peace. In John 14, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But I give you my peace. You don't need to make agreements with this world. Believe in me. To have peace, says Jesus. He, he removes the turbulence and the fears so that what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 is true. That peace can rule in your hearts. 
He says in Philippians 2 that there's a peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It can guard your heart in Christ Jesus. That's what's available for us. But not only is it the child has David's throne, he also has God's character, and we don't have time to unpack all the, just, the implications of the, the justice and righteousness that with which he will rule the foundation of God's throne um, that is God's character. Uh, but here's what, we need to, here's what we need to know as we land the plane. That this promise of peace, it's not a treaty. It's not a treaty to end all wars. It is making an agreement with God to believe his promises, to trust his faithfulness. We know it's true. The last line of this passage is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your ability, but 100% on God's faithfulness. And here's what that means. You need to break the agreements that you have made with this world. You have agreements that you have made looking to horizontally for things that only the Lord can give you. You've made agreements looking to places for security, for strength, for significance, for satisfaction, for some sort of status. And these agreements are fueling your anxiety. And they will lead to ruin because the promises of the world are empty. We break those agreements so that we can receive the blessing and the promises of God by believing him. He has come. He will come again. He promises never to leave you or forsake you. That he is working all things in your life, all your loss, all your frustrations, all your fears, all your pains, all the wars. Those are birth pains for the good of his people and the glory of his name. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And though in this world we will have troubles, he offers us his peace. And he will make peace by reweaving what has been torn, the fabric of his world. So we have to break agreements on the one hand and receive and believe on the other, trusting that God will bring light in the darkness that God will turn our difficulties into joy. That God can bring a harvest of hope through our hard times and our heartache. Hope is here in Jesus. It's been designated, detailed, and determined. It's on you if you're going to believe it and receive it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing love, and faithfulness to your promise. It's made full in Jesus Christ. Lord, we together ask your Holy Spirit to help us to believe, to help us to see, to help us to trust. Lord, we pray that you would ambush us, that we would have a harvest of hope, and our joy would turn into great rejoicing. Even in the midst of our struggles and our suffering, our pain, our problems, our hard parts of life and our loss. Lord Jesus, do what only you can do, we pray. In your name. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's...